So when we open up any portion of Scripture, especially a new book, we always have to uh, understand the context, the author, the context. Uh, this is the book of James, and there's many Jameses in the Bible. Uh, two of them are, are mentioned as part of the Twelve, the Twelve Apostles. There's James, the, son, the uh, uh, brother of John, the, the sons of Zebedee, and there's James, uh, the son of Alphaeus. But the James that wrote this letter is thought to be, and I think for, I'll give you some reasons in a minute, the uh, oldest brother of our Lord, the half-brother of our Lord, if you would be, the oldest one. He's always listed first. When they list Jesus' brothers and sisters, his name is always listed first. So we have to assume he is the oldest of the brothers. And what's interesting is that, as you recall, he and his family did not believe Jesus was who he was. Matter of fact, they thought he was crazy. Remember, they came to get him and to bring him home because they thought he had lost his mind. But then we see then in after Jesus' death and resurrection in Acts 1, after Jesus had been resurrected, after he had then spent 40 days on earth and then had ascended, here's what we find uh, as the, the 12 disciples are hovering in the upper room. It says, and when they had entered, that would be the 12 disciples, and this is Acts 1.13, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Verse 14, and all these were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So what happened between Jesus' earthly ministry and Jesus' ascension to James, one of Jesus' brothers? Well, the, the, uh, the answer to that really Paul gave us when we were studying 1 Corinthians uh, last month in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, when, when Paul is, is, is telling the Corinthian church about the resurrection, how Jesus did have a physical body resurrection. You must believe in that, and you will also have a physical resurrection. In verse uh, 5 through 7, he says this, uh, speaking of Jesus' resurrection, and that he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, and that would include the two Jameses listed in the twelve a minute ago, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or died. And in verse 7, then he appeared to James. So this James is different than the James listed above as well, James. And then to all the apostles he appeared to. It. So James, the brother of our Lord, um, became the leader of the church at Jerusalem. He became, Paul referred to him as a pillar of the church. When he went back to, to the church of Jerusalem, he described uh, uh, him as a pillar of the church. And uh, as you recall in Acts uh, 12, too, remember when Peter was arrested um, and he miraculously escaped, you know, his chains fell off, the guard, the gate opened, the guards were asleep, nobody ever saw it, the spirit let him out. And then he went to, uh, to the house of Mary, uh, the mother of John, whose other name is Mark, and a little servant girl came to the door, and, and Peter said, I'm here. And they did, she knew that was him, but didn't let him in, and went back and told the others. Well, finally, she did come back, and, and, and Peter, because he just escaped, he didn't stay there, because that was a place that they probably knew to come looking for him. 
Uh, he didn't stay there, but he told them this. He said, tell James and the brothers all that has happened. So James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. And in Acts 15, he was the, uh, um, the leader of the Jerusalem council. As you recall, when, when the Judaizers were coming, saying, okay, in order to be saved, you've got to be circumcised and you've got to follow the law of Moses. Well, Paul and, and Silas took it back to Jerusalem and they met, called the Jerusalem council to discuss that issue. Uh, Jason's been preaching about it in Acts 15 the last couple of weeks, so we know what that's about. Anyway, he, James was the leader of that council, the leader of the, the Jerusalem church, or the, the Jerusalem council as well. Um, he sometimes called James the just because he, he was known for his righteous living as his letter kind of reflects in him. Um, and he was martyred about 62 AD. But, but here, here's what I'd like to think about it when he's talking about James. As he starts his, his epistle here, he says, James, he identifies himself, a servant. Now, James had, he's here, he, he's a leader of the church. He's um, the brother of our Lord, which might give him a certain amount of stature. Okay, I mean, he could use that to his uh, uh to his benefit at some sort, but he doesn't do that. He says, a servant of God and Jesus Christ. Knowing God and Jesus Christ were both deity. He doesn't say, I'm just a servant of God. I'm just a servant of our Lord Jesus Christ. He understood that Jesus and God were one in essence as well. So he, he like all the... Um, writers, especially Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, a slave of Jesus Christ. He does not uh, put any type of uh, earthly value on his fact he's the Lord's brother, earthly brother. That holds no weight at all in him as well. Um, he knew who Jesus truly was, and he knew to be the greatest in the kingdom, he must be the servant of all. Then he says he writes this to the 12 tribes in a dispersion. Well, the 12 tribes are the descendants of Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob. So he's referring to the nation Israel. So, so this letter is written to Jewish people in the dispersion. Now, the dispersion, again, dispersion just means to be dispersed, to spread out. And so the dispersion, as you know, the Jews really throughout history were dispersed by many things. They'd be conquered by another nation and be dispersed throughout, uh, uh, away from their homeland, away from the promised land that God gave them. So there are many Jews living in other countries for many reasons. Um, and then even Jews, for business reasons, many Jews would move outside of the promised land as well too, dispersion. But primarily dispersion, I believe James is talking about, not those that happened hundreds of years ago, but recently because of the persecution of the church in Acts 8. Remember after, martyr, after Stephen was martyred, great persecution arose in the church. And they were spread out. They were dispersed. And so James writes this letter to those Jewish Christians. These are Jews that had uh, accepted Christ, kicked out of the synagogue, uh, but still of Jewish descent. Okay, so that's kind of the audience that he's writing this to, and they are dispersed throughout the nations, very similar to the audience that, that Peter wrote in First and Second Peter to the elect exiles, those that were true believers of Christ, but exiled away from the promised land as well. 
And so we can consider, and, that, and most of that took place, as I said, uh, after the martyrdom of Stephen and the persecution of the church. And so you can consider the persecution of the church as godly wisdom, because in our earthly wisdom, we want it to be easy. I mean, we don't want it to be persecuted, do we? I mean, we want to go, okay, I accept Christ. I'm going to stay here. Everyone's going to like me. It's going to be fine, right? I don't need to move. Well, that didn't happen to the, the early church as well. But that's our earthly wisdom, and that's kind of what we want it to be. But as Christians, that's not, that's not necessarily the case. But in God's wisdom, why, does he, why did he persecute the church? I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's, there's several reasons, but I'll just kind of give you a couple. Number one, as we become Christians and we face persecution or trials, or afflictions, or anything of that sort. As Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians earlier, that is so we rely on God more than ourselves. Because you recall Paul was, uh, thought he was going to die. He was past all his strength, and then he realized that oh, that was God teaching him to rely on God more. So the persecution taught these early Christians and teaches us to rely more on God. But in another manner, it also, in godly wisdom, it spread the gospel. It took it away to people that wouldn't ordinarily probably have moved. We'll put it that way as well. So that's godly wisdom. And that just fits perfectly into, uh, into Romans 8.28, where all things work together for good for those who love God. For our good and for his glory. We spread his word as well. So James writes this letter to these Jewish Christians that are, that are living in these pagan countries. And the essence of the whole letter is, is something like this, okay? You're living among pagans, as we all are, okay? But they're living strictly in a pagan country as well. He wants them to make sure that the way they live is consistent with the faith they profess. And what better way to test that faith and through trials, which is what they're going to, and that's what all of us uh, as well. So trials, um, everyone has trials, right? I mean, that's just, that's part of living in a fallen world as well. Um, and it's been said, if you're not currently in a trial, you're coming out of one or you're fixing to enter one. So life is full of trials and Christians aren't exempt from those by any means. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, said they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. Uh, Job tells us that in Job 5, 7, but man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. So just as assuredly as sparks go up when they're burning, man is going to have trouble. And later in Job, he says, man who is born of woman, which would be everybody, right, uh, is few of days and full of trouble as well. Okay, the psalmist said, be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. So trials are part of life. We all go through them, and we all go through them frequently. Some greater than others in this life, uh, but we all do it. And for those of us who claim faith in Jesus, those trials are the best demonstration of whether your faith is genuine or not. The only way you can test your faith is through difficult times. Um, 
When times are easy, your faith is not tested, right? And that's, and that's what Jesus was speaking of in the parable of the soil. Did you recall when, when he threw the seed on the, on, the, um, on the path and never took root at all? But he threw it on the rocky ground, and what did it do? It took root for a small time, but then when the sun came up and it got hot, it withered away because it had no root. It did not produce any fruit like the seed that fell in the good soil that produced much fruit. So trials are tests of our faith. Um, and, and, you know, all through the Bible, Paul, we know he was afflicted trials at every turn. I mean, he uh, physical and mental trials. And even our Lord was not exempt. In a song we just sang, he was mocked, he was spitted on, he was hung on the cross. Um, in the garden, he, he anguished over having to go through. They say, can you take this cup from me? Um, so even the Lord in his humanity was not exempt from those as well. And so when, Paul, when James here says, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, well, trials take all shape, form, and fashion, various kinds. Physical illnesses uh, to yourself or a loved one, um, death of a loved one, a spouse, a parent, a child. These are very difficult things. Financial problems. Uh, which we face as well. Uh, family problems, relational problems, um, work problems, um, people at church problems. I mean, there's, there's problems everywhere, right? Uh, there's problems we bring on ourselves, and there's problems that we don't bring on ourselves. Um, and there's problems that are brought on because of our faith. Okay, we, we, I mentioned that earlier, that uh, Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, uh, remember the word that I said to you, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Indeed, all who, and, and Paul said this in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Christians are not exempt from trial. In fact, they're actually more likely to have trials. And it's more important for us during these trials because in those trials, the genuineness of our faith shines through, or the lack of our faith shines through as well. So the question is, you know, not, we don't try to avoid trials at all costs, okay? They're inevitable, okay? We don't try to avoid them. And it's not just we just get through them, you know, so that we just survive them and, and come out the other side as well. No, trials are purposed. Trials have a reason. Trials are placed there by God as well. And trials show who you really are as well. Um, you know, I'm sure Coach o told you at one time, you got to hurt a little bit to know what it's like to feel good. Or if what doesn't, what doesn't kill you <laughs> makes you stronger. Okay. I think you got that from the Bible. But anyway, I don't, probably not my coaches, but probably not yours either. But um, but that's kind of the, the idea here. Trials have a purpose. They strengthen you. And we'll go over those purposes in just a minute. So, so if a, you know, the fact is none of us want a trial-filled life. Um, you know, we would like for everything to be pretty smooth, you know, no conflicts, plenty of money, 
your health's good, your children are doing well, family relationships are good, everything's going great in the church. Well, if a preacher, if a preacher promises you that through his gospel, you need to go to another church because that's truly a false gospel. We will face trials. Things will not be perfect all the time. Um, and it's through those trials, again, that our faith is either proven or disproven as well. Um, so if during a trial you are wallowing in the pity, you're asking, why me? Um, you know, uh, you need to check your faith. You're, that's one of little faith or a counterfeit faith. But if you're looking through a trial and you're saying, God, I know this trial was meant for me. What am I learning in this? How is this trial making me more like you? You know, that is one that demonstrates a genuine faith uh, in times of trial. Um, so scripture mentions about eight, or actually it mentions many, many purposes for God allowing trials in our life. I mean, you consider, consider Job and the trials he went through as well too, but, but all throughout scripture it is evident that um, uh, trials are part of life and part of our testing here on earth as well too. So I'll give you kind of eight, and these kind of overlap, and you can, you can think of more of them as well, but it gives us the idea, and what I want to put in your mind today is the idea, the thought that trials are not evil, they're not random, but they are purposed by a sovereign God over, this, over our life as well and over this world. So eight purposes for God allowing trials to his people, to those who believe in him. And number one, uh, to test the strength of our faith. We just mentioned that earlier. Now, he's not testing our faith so that he knows what our faith is. Okay, He gave us that faith. But he is testing our faith so we know. He, so we are taking spiritual inventory. For yourself. So we know how our faith stands as well. That is the, the important. He, so he's really assisting us in taking our own spiritual inventory. So if we face these trials resentful to God and bitter and self-pity, we need to examine our faith. Our faith is really weak. But if we turn more and more to God in these trials and in these tests, asking him for help and strength and purpose to get through them, that shows a strength of faith as well. So God has tested his people, um, even back in the Old Testament, when God gave manna to the people, he said, he told them this, that in Exodus 16, chapter 4, it says, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people should go out and gather a day's portion every day. Remember, they weren't supposed to keep it overnight because it wouldn't be very good. That I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So even that was a test. Even that gift of giving manna to supply them in the wilderness was a gift so that they could take spiritual Do I trust God? Is he really going to give me that manna tomorrow? Or do I need to put it in the fridge? Keep it. Even put it in the fridge, it, it spoiled by the next day as well. But it was a test. It was a test for themselves. Um, and in Deuteronomy 13.3, remember God, God didn't just, false prophets just didn't appear, but God allowed false prophets to, to uh, preach falsely. And in, in Deuteronomy 13.3, he tells 
the children of Israel why that is. He says, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So even the false prophets was a test to true believers, to the children of Israel. As you recall in 2 Chronicles, Hezekiah, he tested uh, Hezekiah as well. He, you know, Hezekiah was, had an illness where he was going to die. He prayed to God. God gave him 15 more years. Uh, and as you recall, he gave him a sign. He said, Hezekiah said, how am I going to know that God's going to do that? And uh, Isaiah told him, well, you know, if the shadow goes backwards 10 steps instead of forward 10 steps, that means God's going to do it because the shadow can always go forward. But if it goes back, he knows it's of God. Anyway, he gave him a sign. Um, but then when, when princes from another country came and heard he, Hezekiah was sick and he heard, they heard about the sign from God, he said uh, this, he said, and so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him, Hezekiah, to himself in order to test him to know all that was in his heart. So God tests his children, uh, and he tested no one, I'd say, any more than Job. Uh, and at the very end of Job, the purpose of it uh, comes through. In Job 42, 5, he said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, so I, I knew of you, God, and Job knew him pretty well as well. He said, but now my eyes see you. So through those trials, he strengthened Job, his faith, restored him as well. So number one, to test the strength of our faith. Number two, to humble us. To humble us. Um, you know, the more, we all get this way, the more blessings God bestows on us, uh, whether it be earthly blessings, family, whatever, you begin to look upon them as your own accomplishments. I did this. I worked hard for that. He gave, I mean, he, you know, it, it's me, me, me. I did that. And, and so what would happen then if God will suddenly take all that away from you? You know, a financial crisis, he takes everything away from you as well. <clears throat> you know, you have to ask yourself that question when we know this. He goes, what do you have that didn't come from him? What do you have that he does not own? And as he said, tells us in Deuteronomy, who gave you the power to make money? Who gave you the power to do that? Well, that all comes from God, doesn't it? So he can take it away in a moment, and that would humble us because we get pretty caught up in ourselves sometimes when that, uh, when that happens. Um, and that can happen also not only just in a physical, material realm, but in a spiritual realm. You know, we can, God can allow us to do mighty deeds for him. Uh, um, we, can, we can be uh, very knowledgeable in the Bible, and all those things can become a sense of pride, and we take it upon ourselves. What happened to Paul? Remember Paul? God gave him these exceedingly divine revelations, but then he gave him that thorn in the side. Why? So he wouldn't become conceited. Uh, you know, very plain. It says uh, in Second Corinthians twelve. So to keep me from becoming conceited, he gave me to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given to me in his flesh, a messenger from Satan. Um, 
So he gives us trials in our lives, difficulties in our lives uh, to humble us. Number two. Number three, to wean us from our dependence on worldly things. So to wean us, God gives us trials to wean us from our dependence on these earthly things. You know, many earthly things we have, the things we own, um, our education, our successes, uh, our knowledge, our, our, our possessions, none of them in, in and of themselves are bad things, but they are temporal things. They are things just of this world. Um, and what he does to place us through trials, he will wean it. He will take those things away from us. Not only is taken away from possibly humble us, but he takes them away from us. Now, who do we rely on? God. God. An example of that would probably be Moses. Okay, Moses grew up in the Pharaoh's house. You know, until he was 40 years old, he had everything. He had wealth. He had status. You know, he was, he was probably second in line only to the Pharaoh. He had every worldly thing that he could want. But then God took that away. He wandered in the wilderness for 40 years as a shepherd, which, if you recall, a shepherd's kind of down here and a pharaoh's kind of up here. Took him away from all the worldly things he'd known as well for him to rely on God. And then he called him out of that with the strength of those, that those trials brought on and with God's strength to, uh, to perform a purpose for God, to perform a major purpose for God as well. Um, and Hebrews tells us in uh, chapter 11, that chapter on the um, uh, chapter of the hall of, hall of Faith, it is about Moses. Uh, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Okay. And he considered that reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures in Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward, to what was better. So God can take worldly things, trials, uh, take trials, removing us from the world to make us rely more on him. Number four, to call us to an eternal and heavenly hope. To call us to, what I mean by that? Well, think about this. The harder the trials and the longer they last, what do you tend to do as a Christian? You tend to look more and more to what's ahead. To what's ahead. So he's calling. It's a way he can call us to himself as well. Um, you know, Paul understood this very well. In Philippians, remember, he's in a jail cell and he's writing. He, he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. Um, <clears throat> but he says in, in chapter 1, For to me to live is Christ, to die is Cain. His trials brought him face to face with What's next? He goes, I'm kind of tired of what's going on down here, God. You know, it's going to be better for me up there. Um, but he also understood this. If I'm to live, okay, in the flesh, I'm going to be fruitful. That will be fruitful labor for me. But yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He is calling him to a heavenly home. Um, so trials as in Paul's case, definitely will tend to call you home. Um, Paul said in Romans as well, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the trials that we all go through, are not worth comparing 
with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So trials will let us seek glory even more and more. Um, as you recall in uh, uh, chapter 4, he says, uh, in chapter 4 of Second Corinthians, Paul said this again, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So this affliction Paul was going under wasn't really light and momentary. It was extended and pretty heavy, I think. Uh, but it was preparing a weight, uh, preparing for us the weight of glory that we had experienced. And so he says in verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, where we are now, the trials, the difficulties, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. Transient. Our trials are transient as well. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So he will use these transient trials to let us, to call us to his eternal hope. We look through the trials to that eternal hope as well. All right, number five, <clears throat> to reveal, God uses trials to reveal what we really love, what we really love. Where do our priorities lie? What is number one on our priority list? And probably one of the best examples of that would have to be Abraham. If you consider Abraham, God God uh, promises in his old age a son, and that son will be the father of many nations. Okay? And then what does he tell him to do with that son? Yeah, he says, go kill him. So he's probably saying, well, wait a minute, you know, child sacrifice. I know you don't like child sacrifice, um, but he's telling me to do it. Um, he probably had to be a little bit confused at the time, I would think. Um, but he takes him up there, and he, he, he's obedient to God. And if you recall in, in, uh, in, uh, in that depiction of that in Genesis 22, he says, take Esau, your only son. I remember he had Ishmael by someone else. He said, take Esau, your only son, whom you love. And all of us that have children know how much we love our sons. Well, God told him, take him and sacrifice him. Take him and kill him. But as you call it the last minute, he... He stops him from doing that because he knew then that Abraham loved God even more than his only son. I mean, that was a trial and a half. I'm not sure how any of us today would react to that. Um, it would be difficult. It would be a trial that, that, that certainly showed in Abraham his true genuineness of faith. Um, also, uh, it, it, we know what we should love most in everything, the greatest commandment. We should love our Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, and then Jesus said this as well in Luke 14, which um, uh, kind of demonstrates the same uh, purpose. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So now he's not telling you to hate people, right? Especially not those of your family or hate your own life. He's, make, he's given you the, the, uh, the disparity between love of anything that is of this world and his love and the love for him, which is what Abraham came through that trial so well. He demonstrated he loved God even more than his only son through which the promise was supposed to come. 
Uh, so to demonstrate what we really love. Okay, number six, to teach us the value of God's blessings. To teach us the value of God's blessings. You know, so in the world, you know, our reason tells us we need to value these things in the world. And our, our senses tell us, you know, you need to value pleasure and ease and things like that. That's kind of what it tells us. But trials, again, may take away all of that, may take away these worldly things. Again, making us rely more on God's blessings, on his word, on his provision, on his strength, instead of things of the world. Um, the psalmist said this, because your steadfast love is better than life. I love that. The, the love of God is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. All, the, uh, all those that are mentioned in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, they all rejected the world and the things of the world, and God gave them great strength. And that was because right after chapter 11 in Hebrews comes chapter 12. Remember, right in chapter 12, it's because he encourages all of us to take an example of this great cloud of witnesses that he just talked about. Um, and this is what you should do. You should be like them because they all were looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising his shame, and now is seated at the right hand. So we are to take a chapter from that that we... Uh, we don't despise the things of the world, but we don't rely on the things of the world as well. So it helps to teach us to value God's blessing, what he has done for us, instead of the world. Number seven, to develop an enduring strength for greater usefulness to God. So it, trials help us develop strength, do they not? Um, Thomas Manton, which I think we were talking about this morning with Bob, said this, he said, he's one of the Puritans, he said, while all things are quiet and comfortable, we live by our senses and not by faith. But the worth of a soldier is never known in times of peace. The worth of a soldier is only found out in times of the war. The worth, the genuineness of our faith is only demonstrated in times of trial. Well, so, uh, again, in the, uh, in Isaiah 41.10, um, the Lord tells this to the nation of Israel that was going through significant trials at that time. He says, you know, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. That strength comes from God. And again, in Hebrews 11, the, all those, those heroes of faith, it, it, it describes what they did with God's strength. He says they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions, they quenched the power of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, they were made strong out of weakness. So they did it not in their own strength, but in the strength God supplied through the trials that each and every one of those uh, uh, faithful saints went through as well. And Paul uh, describing once he understood the reason for the thorn in the flesh, um, he said this in 2 Corinthians 12, I am content with the weaknesses, with the insults, with the hardships, uh, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And he understands that's kind of a paradox. When I am weak, I am strong. Well, yeah, you are. 
weak and you are strong, but that strength is not your strength. That strength is God's strength that he develops through trials as well. Um, and number eight, and we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago in Sunday school in 2 Corinthians, but to better enable us to help others in their trials as well. So 2 Corinthians, we, we talked about that when, um, when Paul was uh, afflicted, um, he, uh, he said this, uh, Blessed is God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So when we face trials and God comforts us as he does his children, we use that trial and that comforting by God and that trial we've gone through to help comfort those that may be going the same or similar trials as well. Um, Jesus said this in, P, in, uh, in Luke 22 when, um, when uh, Satan, when Satan was going to, when he knew that Peter was going to deny him, you recall this, he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So he was going to set Peter through this trial, this terrible trial of denying the Lord and the mental anguish that would, but that would then strengthen him through God's help to strengthen his brothers. And as we know, Peter was one of the, uh, one of the apostles that uh, was foremost in the church as well. Um, and even our Lord suffered, and even our Lord was tempted. And in Hebrews, it tells us this, for he himself has suffered when tempted, speaking of Jesus, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So here's our he is our priest that is up there. He's been through all temptations. He's been through all trials, more so than any one of us can even imagine or really comprehend. Uh, and now he is up there uh, through that uh, to help us in our time of trials as well. So that's just eight. There's many more than that. But since, since, um, since trials are so important and they're so productive in our lives, it's it's important we know how to weather those trials. How do we get through those trials? You know, if they're going to they're test and strengthen our faith, they're going to humble us, they're going to teach us to value God's blessing, they're going to de develop strength and help us to help others, you know, basically making us more Christ-like. That's essentially what all those kind of add up to. Because it's very important that we know how to weather those trials. And that's what James kind of tells us in this passage here. Um, he gives his audience, the Jewish Christians that are dispersed, and us, kind of practical advice. Uh, and we'll, we'll speak about that in just a minute. But one other thing about trials um, and faith. Trials and faith go hand in hand. Trials, faith, and thankfulness go hand in hand in hand as well. We can get through a trial, and we can thank God, but we can kind of say, well, why did I need to do that? I mean, why, you know, that we can cry out, I didn't, I didn't really deserve that, God. You know, that kind of that kind of shows a, a level of faith that's kind of down here a little bit. But there's a whole nother level of faith that understands the word of God and thanks God ahead of time for the trials he's going to send in his life. 
Okay, because he knows that those trials are going to make him more and more like Christ. And that's a prayer that would be really hard to pray. Hey, God, send the trials. I'm ready for I know what they're going to do. You know, you need to be careful what you pray for. Okay, uh, but that's a whole nother level of faith that understands that. But probably the highest level of faith is those that while in the midst of the trials can be thankful to God. That's probably the most difficult time to do. So in this passage, and that's really kind of the whole of the introduction. <laughs> but in the passage here, we'll just, uh, I'm just going to briefly kind of touch, and next week we'll kind of finish it. Um, the um, the uh, message that James gives us, okay, he's given us practical advice. How do we weather these trials? And in them... He gives us in this verse that we're talking about today kind of five different things that we need to weather these trials. And I'll just list them now, and I'm going to talk about the first one just briefly, but finish up next time. Number one, we need to have, what's he say? Count it all joy, brothers. Count it all joy. We need to have an attitude of joy. And that's not just putting on this face and pretending like I'm happy when all is going badly. Okay? No. It's a command Count it all joy, which is not the normal response to trials that we have. We don't necessarily try, oh boy, you know, it's, I'm, I'm going to be happy about that. No, it's a command though, but we'll talk about that in just a minute. That's number one. Number two, you need to understand the purpose of the trial. You need to understand in your mind why there is a trial as well. So you need a, an attitude of joy. You need to understand things. You need to have, um, you need to be submissive to God. You need to be submissive to that trial and what God is working in that trial for you. So you need to have a, an attitude of submission towards the Lord and what he is doing in that trial to your heart, in your life. Then you need to have a believing heart. You need to believe God is who he says he is and can do what he says he does and what he promises as well. Very important. And you need to have a humble spirit. These kind of go hand in hand. But let me just briefly mention the joyful attitude, the attitude of joy that we must have. Count it all joy, brothers. It's a command that when you go through trials, you must have this joyful attitude. And this joy is not, again, like I mentioned, just a happy-go-lucky, rose-colored glasses, I'm happy, I'm in this joy. No, this this joy that he speaks of is a joy that that that... Jerry spoke of a minute ago, it's that eternal joy, it's that complete joy, it's that uh, total joy, sheer joy, unique joy, it's, it's that joy that only we can experience from the Father. So he commands us, he says, okay, count it all joy. Some of your translations say, consider it all joy. Okay, consider it all joy, which is probably a little bit better. And so I want you to consider that word consider for a while. Okay, when you consider something, okay, you, you think about something that's going to happen, okay? And you think not only about the um, effect it's having on you right now, okay, currently, but where is it leading you? You consider all, that, all aspects of that. Like when you consider marriage, you consider not only right now what you want, but, you know, where is that leading you, Okay. When a king goes to war, he must consider how many men he has. You know, I have the ability to do that as well. Um, <clears throat> or if you buy a house or anything like that, you must consider not only now, 
but what are the what's going to happen in the future? And that's if you if you think about that when you consider joys now you have to you have to look forward. You have to think forward. You have to understand what is this joy what is this trial doing? And that's the attitude that we have to have because uh, in, in in other words if instead of just getting stuck in the here and now and the trial and the difficulty of it as well, now you think through that where God is taking you in that. And it's going to be joy. It's going to be ultimate joy as well. Uh, so you look forward to the benefit and what Christ has produced and what this trial is producing in me. Um, the sad thing about that is to a non-Christian, what can they look forward? I mean, they don't trust in God. They don't believe in God. They, they, uh, you know, the God that promises that, that will comfort us in our suffering, um, the God that's, that's shaky, shaping you and me more into the likeness of his son, uh, you know, no promise of eternal life. There's only the trial to them. They have nothing to look forward on the other side. So they will get caught up and they will get stuck in the trial because in their mind, there's no ultimate purpose in this trial. But to God's children, there is. So when you consider these trials uh, joy, that's what you're considering. You're considering what that trial is accomplishing in you. Uh, and we do that by just the, the passage we read a second ago in Hebrews 2. We, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Um, you know, even Jesus, again, we talked about this. He, he went through these trials. He, he anguished in the garden about it. He didn't want to go through it. You know, take this cup from me. Uh, and then on the cross, you know, why have you forsaken me? You know, he's on the cross and the father turns his face away, like we sang in that song. You know, here it is, the father who he spent eternity with now rejects him for a minute. Or however long he takes. I don't know how long it was. But he rejects him. And he could do that, again, for the joy set before him, for what was on the other side. Um, so we count it all joy. We count it all joy. We consider it all joy. And Paul learned that, you know, in Philippians, again, he's in, in, in the book of Philippians, he's writing that from a jail cell, not knowing whether he's going to live or die. Um, and in 118, there's, there's other preachers that are uh, preaching out of envy and uh, to Paul and you know, speaking bad about him, kind of like in Corinthians where the false apostles were speaking bad about him. And what did he say? He said, kind of, you know, rejoice. I rejoice because they're preaching the gospel. He could see past his trial to the joy that was there. Um, and in 2 Corinthians 10, we talked about that, the thorn as well. So Job, again, one of the probably the uh, most difficult trials you could even imagine besides Abraham doing it, we just talked about, but Job taking everything away, his family, his possessions, he had a wife that told him you just need to curse God and die, and that wouldn't have been much fun, and, and, uh, um, and just, and, but then God restores them, but, but even in the midst of that, in, in chapter 23, Job says this, he goes, but he knows the way I take, and when he has tried me, when he has tested me, I shall come out as gold. So Job knew even in the midst of these trials. Job is one of those that gave thanks in the midst of his trials. I'm not saying he didn't doubt a little bit at a time, but he was one of those that was able to give thanks in the midst of a trial. 
So trials, what I want you to today, we're going to finish the other five points next time, but trials are not random. Trials are ordained by God. Trials have a purpose. Everybody has trials. So we need to understand, and us as Christians, we need to be able to weather those trials, not only for our own strength, but for the world to see how we handle trials, because it's completely different than how the world handles trials as well. So there are many, many purposes in trials, um, and we will give a little bit more practical advice next, next week, okay? Let's pray.